The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. We're underway here, Rob. How you doing, man? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me on, Glenn. You're welcome. I know it's long overdue. You're going to probably complain about that. But let me just <laughs> tell anybody who has stumbled upon this podcast that this is Glenn Lowry. This is The Glenn Show. I'm a professor at Brown University. I'm also the John Paulson Fellow, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which sponsors The Glenn Show. And I'm with Rob Montz. Rob is a filmmaker. Rob and I have collaborated on a number of his projects. He makes documentaries. Rob is somewhat conservative. I think it's fair to say that. And he chooses these uh, provocative topics to uh, investigate in his filmmaking way. Uh, we've collaborated on a number of different uh, shorts that uh, Rob has made about the treatment by Harvard of Roland Fryer, about the threat of free speech on campuses, including our own Brown University, where Rob is an alum. Uh, about the Asians' uh, uh, anti-affirmative action uh, case and uh, so on, uh, other stuff too. Kanye West, Kanye and uh, Donald Trump, uh, Rob did a thing on that. So it's about time for me to reciprocate and have Rob on my show. He's had me on his show on a number of occasions. So welcome, Rob. Uh, good to be talking to you, man. Finally, 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 finally got it invited on. Yeah, I mean, and again, I discovered you because you and I did not overlap when I was at Brown. I discovered you through this show. But that would have been, you know, eight, nine years ago when it was old school blogging heads. Yeah. Um, so it's uh it feels like it's um yeah that's a it's a full karmic loop. Yeah. Uh yeah man I, we've done some uh some incredible things. I really appreciate the invite. Um Not uh, well we're cooking up some new stuff now. Yeah, I want to know uh, what you're up to. Uh, I was especially intrigued by this most recent piece of yours that I saw interviewing at length, Roy Beck, <laughs> uh, who is an immigration, how do you put it, a restrictionist? Is that a fair way of saying it? I mean, he's concerned about well, uh, unauthorized entry into the country of large numbers of people. And uh, what's the name of his organization, Roy? It's, it's called it's called Numbers USA, Roy Beck. I think you found it so compelling because he mostly said that all the great civil rights luminaries of the last 200 years agree with Professor Glenn Lowry when it comes to illegal immigration. <laughs> 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 or, 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 I mean, at least the idea that to be a upstanding, I mean, upstanding black citizen doesn't mean you need to march in lockstep with the Democratic Party, party orthodoxy as it relates to how you're supposed to feel about immigration and illegal immigration. Well, that's a better way of expressing my view, I think, that I'm not against so much immigration as I am concerned about the assimilation of African-American interest uh, to the project of uh, making it easier for people to get into the country and stay in the country who do not have authorization. It's not obvious to me that that's uh, a right. kind of crusade that Black people should be getting behind. And at least I'd like to see some debate amongst African-Americans about it. 
mine was more about opening up space, right? And it was just an interview. And I just, I feel as if we've got an opportunity on our channel to talk to some of my intellectual heroes, including you, including Andrew Sullivan, including Charles Murray. And to a person, if I ask them on or off camera, what is the one particular policy issue you found yourself most radically departing from over the last 10 years? And most of these guys like Sullivan or Murray are kind of proper, proper libertarians, old school libertarians. To a person, they've said immigration. It kept coming up, right? And I related to that because, again, I was steeped in you know, pure big L libertarianism right after I graduated from school. My very first job was Cato Institute. And back at the Cato Institute, it was like, you have to be a mouth breathing tribal heathen to to want anything other than completely unfettered immigration, preferably the, 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 the instant dissolving of national boundaries, given that national border, borders are a retrograde, um, a retrograde primal imposition. They're, they're pure artifice. There is no such thing as, as national borders. We're all one people, free flow of capital, free flow of labor, free flow of, of, of dollars and, and customers. So anything, anything less than that utopianism was considered retrograde. And I myself over the last like 10 years have been mostly following my intellectual heroes and becoming much more restrictionist. Really, I mean, a lot of that stuff is prompted, of course, by the electable Trump. And now we strong opinions about unfettered illegal immigration because they're the ones who bear the wage suppression effects that in that 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 conversation with him and you've seen it it's not me saying roy beck you're right about everything we need to be taking immigration levels back to where they were in in 1989 but it's me admitting to him that i'm also evolving and trying to work my way through this stuff given that i find that you know that libertarian utopianism to be kind of hopelessly naive and potentially economically counterproductive I think there's an irony here uh, from the point of view of African-American interest, which is the irony about um, concerns of uh, unauthorized entry across the uh, southern border are racist. And that's a kind of civil libertarian, civil rights, anti-discrimination claim that Blacks should be friendly to. You know, the people are concerned that the country is going to be undermined because of the entry of uh, people who don't originate in European ports of call. Um, the irony I'm thinking of is that, on the one hand, that's an appealing posture for, for many uh, uh, Black interest advocates, uh, th this idea of a big coalition of non-whites, um, a broad attack on American uh, uh, white supremacist thinking, um, a uh, coalition of uh, peoples of color, you know, uh, advocating for uh, the interests of peoples of color that that has a certain appeal. On the other hand, uh, the African-American claim on the nation's attention to redress the consequences of the history of African-American exclusions going all the way back to slavery that claim is nested within the larger American national narrative. It's an American claim, and it 
supposes the existence of a national framework and context within which that claim can be prosecuted. So uh, the uh, obliteration of borders and the, the denial of there being any interest in the uh, project, the American project, the specifically nationalist uh, uh, ambitions and, and undertakings of we Americans uh, is uh, so, sort of cuts against the, 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 the story that we Black Americans, I think, want to be telling to ourselves and to the country about, about what's the right thing to do, the right thing to do for our country. Absent our country, I don't know where that argument goes. Does it go to the United Nations? Does it go to the world court? Uh, no, I mean, it's an American argument. It's an argument about what is the character of our country. Um, and uh, the equation of Black claims with the claims of uh, residents of Venezuela who would like to be residents of the United States of America uh, obliterates the, the specifically nationalistic character uh, of the Black struggle. It's an American struggle, which is why you're, uh, and Roy Beck's quoting of, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass really <laughs> appealed to me. I mean, I, I get it. I, I get that W.E.B. Du Bois sitting in 1910 looking at what was going on in the country might have, you know, said, well, we got some questions here about, uh, you know, our African-Americans at the back of the queue now, where the queue is going to, you know, be lifted by every uh, aspirant uh, sitting in Southern or Eastern Europe who would like to be uh, at Ellis Island? Are we now at the back of the queue? Uh, that kind of that kind right. of concern. But I mean, I, I think you saw the interview. I specifically said to Roy Beck again, one of the most infamous, famous immigration restrictionists in America. I said that um, the Statue of Liberty and and people coming here for a better life, the great golden dream of America, is. It like it's wonderful. Like I have this incredible book about the, the creation of the Statue of Liberty that was co-written by David Eggers, who's a kind of very famous novelist that I'll read to my kids at least you know, once or twice a month. And it's about this idea of like what it represents and the, the symbol of opportunity and freedom and the idea that America is a creed and a set of an ideas and that radicalism that it's open to people of any any race or ethnicity or religious persuasion. It's just about, you know, you can come here and you get it. You get exceptional, unprecedented, miraculous levels of freedom and opportunity. But in turn, you have to adhere to a certain creed of like personal responsibility and things like that. It's it's so it's like it's so wonderful. Like it's it is wonderful. But at the same time, I guess I wonder. If I started questioning my libertarian orthodoxy about the moral imperative of the dissolution of international borders. Right around the time that Trump got elected, specifically as it relates to the idea that unfettered or extreme, exceptionally high volumes of immigrants, I, I was worried about the, the the cost that they have when it comes to culture. First, first culture, just the idea of you need you, America has an exceptional operating software, and you can assimilate people. Bad word, triggering word. If immigration levels are you know, at a certain level, but yeah. if they're too big and Raihan Salam, your colleague at Manhattan Institute is extremely eloquent about this. Once it gets above a certain threshold, that assimilation stops and people create these little self, uh, these self-contained clusters in which there isn't that 
that that that seeping in of this unique, miraculous American cultural creed, right? Well, right. I could hear the counter argument, which is if we go back to the heyday of Ellis Island, 1890 to 1920, and we look at the flows of people coming from Russia and Italy, having been coming from Ireland for quite some time, coming from uh, Eastern Europe and so on into the United States, they were relative to the size of the population at that time, a larger influx of, quote, foreigners than yeah, yeah. we are now experiencing and uh, we did somehow manage, fitfully and over decades, to quote assimilate uh, these newcomers. These newcomers were not selected because they had high education or because they could put a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. They were the teeming masses of uh, Europe, and and they came in very large numbers. And uh, nativists of that era would have made arguments not dissimilar, perhaps not as eloquent as Raihan, but not dissimilar to the ones that you. Cyrano is having made, and history has shown them they have been wrong. Right. Well, you know, and then what Roy says is, well, let me put it this way. So my children also watch um, The American Tale, which is this cartoon from the uh, cartoon movie from the 1980s produced by Steven Spielberg. And it's about this mice family that is in one of the Soviet satellite states that immigrates to America. And the, the, the mice sing these songs about this golden dream of opportunity of America, best embodied in this song called There Are No Cats in America, right? So they sing this song about there not being any cats in America as, they, as they're on their way to Ellis Island. But once they get to America, they find out that there are actually cats in America, right? That they're, they're, the fantasy doesn't necessarily match reality, which is not to say there's something beautiful about the American operating software, the American idea, the American experiment. But Roy Beck, in our interview, does point out to me that in terms of the raw economic numbers of economic mobility or economic well-being, a lot of the people that came through Ellis Island either flatlined or actually there was slight regression in terms of their actual material well-being when they came to America. Now it's probably a different story with their great grandkids, obviously, but you know you don't want to you don't want to get blinded by the fantasy to what actually happened to the people that, that came to America. I don't know what to make of this, Glenn. I I, I still don't have strong opinions about what we ought to be doing. But I'm trying to like, you know, live in the flux and hear opinions from people from, you know, people that might be able to sharpen my thinking. What do you say when someone accuses you of giving aid and comfort to great replacement theory theorists? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my standard issue, my standard issue answer to any sort of cheap uh, ad hominem social media attacks is to say what what Kanye West says when he's when he's accused of similar things, right? Every time Kanye just says, as a genius Christian billionaire, nobody's going to take my opinion from me, and I'm just going to say that like nobody's going to take my opinion from me as a genius Christian billionaire. Like I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? And I want to talk to you about this. I mean, yeah. with your with your with your successes. I mean, you know, obviously with your incredible successes. Um, what you like, I there's a lot of people that are in our realm building these new media operations, right? That you can sit, you can sit and see what the mainstream prestige media institutions are like. And they're uniformly ideologically corrupted and 
and exceptionally intellectually shallow, right? I agree. And I mean, you ought to bitch about that. That's unfortunate. One of the projects that we're working on now, starring John McWhorter, is about precisely the profound ideological corruption and intellectual shallowness of all the major global media operations. But that failure, that institutional failure and mediocrity also creates incredible opportunities, right? People are like thirsting for good stuff. Yeah. And that's the reason why Glenn Lowry can have like a super successful Substack and podcast. Because people are like, I am so desperate for something that's not childish and so clearly playing along to a kind of staid partisan script. And that's basically what we're trying to do too, is see that corruption and that failure as an opportunity, not just bitch about it indefinitely, you know? Sounds good to me. That's a pep talk. I'm I'm inspired. Yeah, I'm trying. Uh, but wait a minute, yeah. you went to Brown and your first job was Cato? I mean, help me figure that out. Come on, man. There's no father <laughs> to the style. What do you want me to say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want you to say, why didn't the indoctrination of Brown faculty circa, I'm going to guess, 2000? When did you graduate from college? <laughs> 2005, uh, Glenn. I think it was a different place. I mean, you know, uh, you would know much better. That was than the I'm year I came to Brown, 2005. So we, I'm saying we just missed each other. Yeah. I was the contrarian libertarian type. And of course, like, we still had the third world transition program where my second day at Brown, I'm being lectured about the, the knapsack of white privilege. Like that stuff was still there. But I'd say I was a philosophy major. There was sh shockingly little political indoctrination. The only time that really happened was one of my like ancient philosophy professors. Whenever she was trying to talk about like the Aristotelian conception of evil, would always use examples from the George W. Bush administration, like uniformly. That was the only <laughs> time it was like, oh, there's an ideological slant here. But it wasn't. It's, in terms of in the classroom, I don't think it was that bad. And then in terms of like public debates, I mean, my, my main activity at Brown was debate. I think, I mean, I was clearly in the minority, but it felt as if it was not so... It was not so vicious. I just don't think it was as vicious back then, you know? And again, you, that, and, and that turning point was that, that featured case of the first thing that we worked together, that 2013 shutting down of the speech by the New York City Police Commissioner. If you talk to anybody's in this space, like particularly Jonathan Haidt, they say that particular incident at Brown in 2013 represented like the turn of the epic. That is the focal, that is, that, that, that is the hinge point where Brown back before then might have been like, like, you know, 95% progressive, but there was still a willingness to kind of engage with alternative perspectives. And like in 2013 is when it is when it becomes like hysterical, hysterical and and censorious. And it's probably only gotten worse since then. So I just don't think it was the same. I just want to tell people that what happened was uh, Ray Kelly, who was commissioner of police appointed by Michael Bloomberg, three times elected mayor of New York City came up to Brown to give a talk. Uh, I, I think he called it proactive policing. I think that's right. the label that he gave to what he was yeah, trying yeah. to defend. And he was talking about stop and frisk. He was talking about officers taking the opportunity to look inside the pockets of suspicious people who might be carrying weapons on behalf of the project of keeping the city safe. Now, you can have different views about stop and frisk policing. It was, as I say, the policy of a democratically endorsed mayor of the country's largest city on behalf of how do we get the murder rate down from over 2000, which is what it had been in the early 1990s, to under 300 
which is what it uh, bottomed out at uh, during um, uh, the early aughts. So that was what Ray Kelly came to talk about. And an organized uh, group of students and townspeople shouted him down. They stood up in, as he was beginning to give his remarks and they talked over him and they had their signs and they had their slogans, no justice, no peace, no peace, no racist police uh, <laughs> was uh, one of them. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember it vividly because I was sitting in the front row of the auditorium that was packed. Uh, it was at capacity and I'm in the front row only because as a member of the faculty, I had, you know, some leverage. And when I came late and all the legitimate seats were taken, they had set aside some seats for law enforcement personnel at the front of the auditorium. And so next to me on the left was a beef, beefy uh, Cranston, Rhode Island police captain. <laughs> yeah. And I'm up there and uh, Ray Kelly is trying to give his talk. And uh, this went on, this interrupting thing for about 10 or 15 minutes until uh, uh, the uh, authorities called the whole thing off and Kelly in disgust uh, uh, left and uh, left campus and went immediately back to New York City. Uh, after which, of course, there ensued a lot of navel gazing, a lot of uh, back and forth. Various faculty committees were uh, uh, appointed to investigate. A lot of committees. Yeah, Reports were written, um, it's equivocating and splitting the difference, not standing up firmly for free speech, not going after in a disciplinary way the students who had broken rules about uh, how to comport yourself in our community when they prevented a lecture from being given because they disagreed with the content of the lecture, an outrage at a university campus. And it certainly set me off. It changed my life uh, in the sense that I said, what are we here for? What, what what this was a tragic day for the university, I thought. And of course, I still have people that um, colleagues amongst uh, my faculty here who uh, defend uh, the event and how the university handled it. Uh, the student leader uh, uh, who graduated the following uh, summer and uh, uh, the following May uh, with an Africana studies concentration was awarded. Uh, as, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, recognition for their outstanding student leadership and so on. Uh, but the values of the institution, I thought, had been significantly uh, diminished, had, had been offended against by, by what happened there. Right. And so, Glenn, what happens when between 2013 and 2022, you got a solid decade of each new crop of America's cognitive elite is being washed and educated in these institutions like Brown that enable things like that to happen, right? Like crop after crop after crop. And most of them, I don't think get radicalized. I think the percentage of the student body that would participate in the shutting down of a Ray Kelly speech is like five, 10%, right? Max. Max. But it's like 50 to 60% either are taught to you need to be a good ally, and if not publicly support it, not criticize it, or not subject it to rigorous investigation, right? The vast majority of people, it's, it's, it's the kind of silent, complicit majority. Oftentimes, you need to be the silent, complicit majority if you want to continue to rapidly ascend the lucrative ranks of the American meritocracy. You get a decade plus 
of the cognitive elite get trained that way, and then they filter into the institutions that are the that that the institutions that set the narrative about America, not just the New York Times, not just CNN, but you know institutions like that. And enough of them begin to occupy these institutions and push out, push out the boomers, <laughs> right? And, yeah, and, and, I, then, I, and, and then George Floyd happens. It's like, you know, and then like, what happens? You know, it's like, what happens? What happens? What uh, catastrophic mismanagement by the American elite is what you get under times of extreme stress, right? And that's just, that's just like the two new docs that we're about to put out both have deal with basically different sides of that puzzle in the summer of 2020. Well, you've been, you've been working in this uh, very rich vein uh, for, <laughs> quite, for quite some time. And I mean, yeah, I'm buying your narrative. I'm buying your narrative that you take Brown and you multiply it by 50. You take you know the 50 most elite campuses and you multiply that by 1,000. Those are the flows of kids coming out. They go into the media. They 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 go into uh, journalism. They they go into academia. They they go into uh, corporate America in various positions, and they bring a certain mindset with them, and that affects what movies and TV shows get made. That affects whether or not a sixteen nineteen project gets stood up. That 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 affects whether or not editors end up getting cashiered because they. Uh, use their op-ed page to voice the wrong opinion at those certain publications and so on and so yeah. forth. That ends up with uh, a summer of uh, civil uh, disorder, violence, and rioting being characterized as mostly pe peaceful protests. And I damn well dare you to say it was anything other than that. That ends up with a fraudulent <laughs> civil rights movement like Black Lives Matter be yeah, being let's lionized. Go. Let's go. Come on, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just yep. getting warmed up, Rob. <laughs> I know, glad I know, I know, I know. So, but I mean, it's but I think it's also in the summer of 2020, with that profound ideological corruption of the people that run COVID policy and also de define the narrative about race relations in America. They're dead wrong and they enforce their dead wrong orthodoxy through muscular censorship. Who ultimately bears the costs of that, right? And I, I, it's not the people of the Ivy League. It's not the tenured faculty, right? It's um, it's the working class. It's the people that are well outside the laptop class that didn't go to the Ivy League. They don't have fancy liberal arts degrees, right? They're the people that suffer from violent disorder. And they're the people that suffer when you start incinerating jobs in response to, in response to a novel virus, right? And the two big things that we're about to put out kind of attempt to make that point about, you know, we don't forget, like there's still a body toll. And even though it hasn't come to Providence, it's still there. You know, it's tell still me, there. Tell me about these two projects. Uh, yeah, again. Um, it's forthcoming. Uh, yeah. The, the, oh, there's only so much you can say. Well, I mean, okay. The one of them starring again, this, this Columbia linguist you might be familiar with, John McWhorter. And oh, yeah. John and I do every other week on the off <laughs> weeks. John I'm and I do the I Glenn feel like show. you guys would get along. <laughs> We've been doing it for almost 15 years. I mean, going back to 2007, you know. And, and I, will, I will say this, dude. He knew this when he signed up. His co-star interview in this is former Trump Attorney General Bill Barr. Is another oh, thing you got Bill so Barr. Bill Barr and John McWhorter. So the title of it, I'm not going to give the whole game away, but the title of it is called The Broken Boys of Kenosha. 
and it's Jacob Blake, Kyle Rittenhouse, and the lies we still live by. And what we think we've, what we've found with it, there was these wow. kind of, these dual viral incidences in the, 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 the back half of the summer of 2020. Jacob yeah. Blake, who I'd imagine you're, you, I know you, and then also you're- Oh, we've talked about it at length. Yeah, I know you guys, your, your audience is going to be familiar. And then his shooting is what prompts Kyle Rittenhouse to come down to Kenosha three days takes these dueling viral incidences and tries to kind of the martyr the classic unarmed black male getting gunned down by white supremacist police officer on the flip side the fox news conservative media crowd Kyle Rittenhouse is a Second Amendment hero, right? He's a he's an unadulterated hero. Let's put him up on a poster. Both of those narratives miss what actually happened, and we have found a we have found like kind of a theoretical framework that is correct that I missed that connects Blake and Rittenhouse and both of the people that Rittenhouse murdered. There's a similar shared extremely important trauma shared between the four of them that never got discussed that never so you discussed. say rittenhouse murdered these people but uh of course he's going to say he acted in self-defense do you take a stand in in that regard uh he no he he did act in self-defense but the idea that it falls to an adolescent with an ar-15 to defend private property is an obscenity yeah right and we have the story as to how that came about. I see. And it's, it's largely why, why, why it is that he was there and what had happened to render him needed in those circumstances is, um, hasn't totally been, been properly told. And um, yeah, and I think it's just, it's a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, but I think I think you know it also what we're trying to do with it. It's going to cut through any sort of neat partisan, like John McWhorter does his thing where he just like devastates woke orthodoxy in it. But we go to kind of deeper levels than that. You have to clear away the the, the moronic narrative that was foisted upon it before it happened. But what really happened doesn't fit any neat partisan packaging, and you know that's gonna we're gonna run a risk in terms of the audience that it's going to get, but it does happen to be an accurate reflection of reality. So you're meaning yeah. that both for left and right wing extremists, they're going to be unhappy because you don't affirm their narrative of, of the events. No, no. And it does, yeah, no. Yeah, now, don't I recall correctly that both uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, this is during the 2020 campaign. Do I not recall correctly that they made a hero out of Jacob Blake. They talked to him from his hospital bedside. They, they wished him, uh, you know, yeah. good luck as he was kidnapping his kids and, uh, you know, attacking a police officer and so forth. <laughs> and, so, and, and begging yeah. and begging to be dealt with harshly in terms of how it was that he was conducting himself. I mean, he's hardly a hero. Uh, you don't, yeah. you don't wish a crippling gunshot wound on anybody, but, uh, uh he was hardly a postable child. And yet, Democratic candidates for president and vice president uh, lionized this guy as if he were a hero, and it went without comment in the media, as far as I can tell. No one, no, said, there's no accountability. That's why no we're one still slapped their forehead and said, "What the fuck?" 
No. And it's even, and even, it's even told McJohn this, there was about the, the number of lies related to that shooting are even deeper than you or John know at this point. There's other, there's even more things about it that were active, flat out fabrications that, but it's like, you don't want to start sounding like a weird tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, but I've now consumed all the media coverage related to the shooting, right? And it gets a little weird when every single media operation is repeating the same set of lies. But I'm not saying it's the Illuminati. I'm not. It's a coordinated conspiracy. It's kind of like a soft conspiracy because everybody that runs these organizations all went through Brown and they know the script they're supposed to follow. So there doesn't need to be a Slack channel for all the producers at ABC and NBC and CNN and all the nightly shows. But they all act in coordination and in conjunction and repeat the same fabrications. And it's grotesque. It's incorrect. Ends up doing deep damage. What, what's infuriating, Glenn, is it ends up doing deep damage to precisely the people that these people want to claim to care about, right? Like they get all of their sense of self-satisfaction and moral righteousness because of their defense of the black boy. Like, who do you think bears the cost when you lie about the attempted attempted kidnapping of black boys, right? Like who who bears the cost of that? Yeah, the next mother down the line whose boyfriend is a nutcase and who decides to drive off with her kids is going to bear the cost because maybe the cop is going to not be as aggressive in dealing with it or whatever. Right. And, um, you but know, let me just say um, this. You say you say you don't believe in conspiracy. It doesn't have to be a conspiracy. I mean, we have this idea in economics called the focal point. The focal point is where tacitly we all know something and we converge on it. And it's stable because everybody else is converging on it. Uh, Tom Schelling, the late great economist and a friend of mine, uh, used to tell this story about, he says, suppose we were in New York City and we were going to meet, but our phone got cut off before we could agree when and where. What would we do? Well, we'd show up in the middle of Times Square at noon. We go to Times Square and we go there at noon. That would be what we would imagine the other guy would think that we were thinking. These people, having been indoctrinated, as you point out, know <laughs> what the other guy thinks I'm supposed to be thinking, and they and they just jump on that bandwagon. This is uh, my it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It doesn't have to be a room where everybody meets and decides what to do. Right, and, and nobody's held accountable. I think is some of the is some of the frustration. But part of the reason that we're able to punch above our weight class and get people like you to participate in our docs, or get Bill R, a two time Attorney General, to participate. Congratulations. There, he's equally frustrated with, he turns down the CNN interview request and says yes to Good Kid Productions. Just a couple rebels in Richmond. Like he'll say yes to us because he knows like we see what he sees. We see what he sees. And so that's part of also pouncing on the opportunities that are afforded us by the complete and catastrophic failure of the kind of mainstream prestige institutions including the Ivy League institutions, as we made abundantly clear in the Roland Fire Doc. Let me also say we're doing, we have some yeah. COVID contrarian stuff dropping as soon as next week. And it, um, again, there's just stories that don't get picked up because they don't fit the narrative you're taught sophomore year at Brown University. And we're just- COVID we're contrarianism, which it's safe to do now, but a year ago, you would have had your head handed to you for doing it. I know, I think about that too, if I'm like, kind of a, a wuss for having not we did a little <laughs> bit you know i know i know i know i mean you know 
it is safe now, now that we've been vindicated. But people are still desperate for it. I mean, we put up an interview with Jay Bhattacharya and did it's just it's a it's a 90 minute uncut, unproduced interview with Jay. And it got tons and tons of views because people are, again, they're they're completely disenchanted with the the kind of uh, the, the mainstream institutions. I do think that something about summer 2020 broke the faith of a lot of people. Like it just, you, we always knew that there was a level of corruption and competence, but multiple months of just straight ubiquitous propaganda, I think breaks that faith. And now it's like, okay, what are the institutions that emerge within that emerge from the ashes of that, you know, and you're doing it and we're trying to do it and other people are trying to do it as well. Yeah. Sounds good. What has been the fallout on the Roland Fryer uh, piece? This was a, a defense of Fryer, the Harvard economist who has been sanctioned by the university for allegedly engaging in sexual harassment in the laboratory that he ran there, suspended without pay for two years, recently reinstated. And um, uh, I'm just wondering. I, I was very happy to see the doc screened at the par old Parkland conference in Dallas that I've spoken about here at the Glenn Show, and uh, that I was uh, one of the principals in organizing. But uh, has any mainstream uh, media picked up on it? Has there been any uh, feed feedback, pushback, anything? Have, yeah. Well, there's no pushback, Glenn, because it's dope and it's correct. <laughs> what are they gonna say? What are they gonna say to the your monologue in that? about the 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 bow tie wearing professional class of black intelligentsia at Harvard. What do they what do they gotta say? Like there's, there's nothing you just gotta sit. You just gotta sit and take it. You just gotta sit and take it. I guess yeah, I mean yeah, I certainly didn't get invited on Good Morning America. Aha. Uh -huh. It's it's done extremely well. It's done extremely well. Um I for me, I thought it would be a success if it did well enough that if you Google his name, it's on the first page of results, and it is now. So it's about narrative, trying to change the narrative about him, something that counterbalances the yeah. like New York Times hit piece. But yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the Brown graduates that are the executive producers at the daytime shows aren't going to invite me on. <laughs> that's that. That's right. Nobody watches their stuff anyway. Like CNN Plus is dying an instant death within a week of its release. And meanwhile, when they attempt to cancel Joe Rogan, that very week they tried to cancel Joe Rogan because of his COVID contrarianism, he gained 2,000 subscribers. So I, I guess I feel like a lot of these dinosaur institutions are being rendered increasingly irrelevant anyway. So who cares? It's like, just take the opportunities that are presented to you. Yeah, but you know, as far as, as, far as the material benefits to the man himself, I do not know. Um, I mean, I wish that it could have elicited, an, I wish that Harvard had said the, 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 the beauty and the analytical acuity of this 24 minute documentary on the Good Kid Productions YouTube channel is so powerful. Now, formally apologize for the grave injustice that we inflicted upon this man, and we restore his his named, <laughs> you know, chaired uh, his his named professorship. But I don't think that's going to happen. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I saw so, a letter, and I just can't remember the the name of the guy. He's a big uh, hedge fund type. 
financier in Boston, a Harvard alum and a member of the uh, overseers at Harvard, written to Larry Bacow, who has stepped down now as president, but has been had been president during the period when the Roland Fryer incident arose, in which he lambasted, gosh, I wish I could remember, I'll look it up and uh, we'll include it in the notes here, uh, the uh, president, Bacow, and um, the uh, top administration of the university along a number of fronts. One of them was how the university had responded to the COVID crisis by shutting down and whatnot, creating a bad example, not thinking through, not looking at the evidence. Wow. Just kind of reflexively. And then the other uh, was, uh, well, there were three. Uh, one was about uh, boycott, divest, and sanction, the extent to which Harvard had allowed space for the anti-Israel movement or whatever. So this was this guy's view about that. But the other, the final complaint to Bacow was uh, about Fryer. Why did not you protect this uh, wonderfully creative, brilliant, important uh, member of our faculty uh, here from this, you know, uh, flimsy, uh, you know, insubstantial uh, bullshit uh, sexual harassment case? I mean, you know, why, why was your instinct to jump on the Me Too bandwagon and the Title IX bandwagon and eviscerate this guy? Uh, when uh, the underlying factual circumstance was so thin, and your film was cited in this letter as uh, as evidence, you know, on behalf of the larger oh, man, case. you gotta send that. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna I I'm gonna look it up because the letter has been very widely spread. I think it was privately sent to Backhow, but got leaked. And I will I will look it up. This and, dude cited uh, the doc. He mentions uh, the film. I don't think he cited the name of the film yeah. or the filmmaker, but he he mentions the the doc oh. as, as a part of the uh, of the larger. He does not refer to me as a once in a generation auteur. That's unfortunate. Unfortunately, okay, not yet. But that's coming, Rob. That's that's coming. <laughs> so you're content to make these uh, twenty minute uh, shorts or whatever is is that your genre or, or you know you're thinking about Hollywood? Nobody nobody's calling to get you to try to you know. Where's the heterodox TV? Uh, where's the where's the 21st century's all in the family uh, kind of uh, idea? This is, this is a soft spot for me. I, okay, well, I mean, we can. This is going to become like an emotional therapy session. Uh, I, I'm very happy with the docs. Do my ambitions exceed where we are currently at? 100. percent Yes. Um. Have I had some very light conversations with people that operate within the mainstream? Yes. But Glenn, like, I'm happy to put the hours in and happy to hustle to try to get on larger platforms if I thought there was like a remote possibility that it would result in anything. But it still feels like trying to play in that world is a waste of time. I mean, I like, I there are oh. people at Netflix or Amazon and other production houses that have corresponded with me but it's all it's all on the it's all on the down low <laughs> like you know it's like and I, already, I think the role in i think the role in thing is the best thing i've ever made we've ever made you and i've ever made josh and I, the team has ever made but part of it is like we took an extra month to get the production value at the level where it could be on a netflix right like to spend the time and the money to show we can do heterodox anti-woke provocative, muscular, smart investigations, but we sacrifice nothing in terms of production quality, right? Like we're playing at your level in terms of animation and 
and, and cinematography and editing, but we're saying stuff that is like mad problematic. It was, it was trying to prove that you could do those two things at the same time. And that's created opportunities for us, but it's not as if, yeah, I'm not, not taking zoom meetings with Netflix VPs. I mean, I, I don't know, but what are you going to do? I mean, are you like, are you content for substance? Like, I, like you, you, I mean, I've said that you, you, like, you should be the most famous public intellectual in America right now. You should be getting the Ibram X Kendi $10 million BU deal. I, I assume you're not because like well, you happen I, to be mad problematic with your politics, right? <laughs> $10 million is chicken feed, as you know. Okay. I mean, if I were content to run in a little seminar room somewhere up on the fifth floor of an office building on Boston University's campus, $10 million is a lot of money. Okay, okay. But it, but in real life, we all know that $10 million is not, is not you know... Uh, so that's a personal question. I'm in my 70s, as you know. I know it doesn't show, but it's true. <laughs> uh you know, my wife is in her 50s and uh, I'm hoping for some decades of domestic tranquility and experience of the, of the, you know, let's enjoy, smell the roses and drink the wine and, you yeah. know, et cetera. Uh, so I, you know, I got to figure out what I want to do with my time. And uh, I'm not as driven as I was when I was younger. I don't think I have anything to prove. You know, I've got, you know, yeah. all the accolades and all that kind of stuff. So the question is, what do I want to do with my time? Uh, I have uh, actually decided, I've mentioned this here before, uh, to enter into a phased retirement uh, understanding with Brown University. I'm going, going half time in my teaching and cutting back on my administrative work. And after three years, I'll, uh, I'll you know, I'll step down, uh, which is a long story. You know, no one's asking me to step down. I know I'm, a I'm the conservative at Brown University. No, no one's asking me to step down. But no one's begging me not to either. <laughs> and it's all good. It's appropriate. 74 years old, you know, I don't want to be carried out of here, you know, drooling and uh, losing my way halfway through the lecture and whatnot like that. I mean, I, I've had a good run. Uh, 46 years as an academic. Uh, and, you know, uh, this last phase or this next phase uh, may be something different. Uh, the podcast is fun. It's easy to do the podcast newsletter. Well, easy. I got to talk to guys like you. <laughs> I've got a good team. I've got a good editor. I've got a good production uh, creative director uh, guy that uh, we work together. Uh, so uh, that's good. My main thing now is to make sure that uh, this time next year on every bookstore shelf and at every, uh, you know, internet uh, online ordering, you can find a copy of. Uh, okay. The Enemy Within, that's that's my memoir in process that, you know, we're making really good progress on and I'm, I'm very happy about it. So I know, asked I'm, about that memoir, by the way, people think that I have I was like, Glenn was finishing it when I first interviewed him for the Brown University documentary. That's what he said. He was out in Stanford in this like obscenely idyllic setting to complete yeah. his memoir. That's how I first met him. I assume it's been under the works since then. But there are many people that are are eager, are eager to read it, are eager to read it. Can, can I ask you, do yeah. you think though, I mean, let me see. This is part of, okay, let me, fine. Part of your appeal though, right? Is like, you are critical of 
woke orthodoxy, but the fact that you're at Brown is an essential part of that package, right? It shows like you can play in their, like you can play at the highest levels of intellectual achievement and in their game and you still criticize it, right? There are plenty of people that I love and follow that can do that second part, not as well as you do, but can criticize it. But there's that added thing that you can do both at the same time. Is there a way though, like once you retire, are you basically the last of that breed? Is there any space at all for the next generation of Lowry's who are willing to be critical of it, but that also have an opportunity to ascend it, you know? Or has it just become so ideologically inhospitable that once you're gone, everybody just has to retreat to the think tanks or to Substack? Like there's nobody that's going to come up within the system itself that can critique it. Wow. Do you know? What do you think? No, it's a good question. Uh, it's true. I mean, not only Brown being a bastion of, you know, woke, politically correct thinking and me being a standout within that environment and therefore having as a part of my brand, not only have I brought a conservative critique, but I've done so in the teeth of or in the face of the Trisha Rose cadres of the world yeah. and have survived and have the respect of my students and many of my colleagues uh, and certainly have a, a good track record as a scholar. Uh, but there's also something, you know, about the prestige of the Ivy League and so on that lends a kind of cachet, a kind of seriousness, you know, uh, to the person. Oh, they were good enough to be included within that very elite uh, cadre uh, by their peers. He he must be a serious person. He's got tenure at that kind of a place. That kind yeah, of yeah. Um, I think for my sake, personally, if I step away from Brown and become professor emeritus and stop uh, teaching on a regular basis and uh, in effect surrender my sinecure here, uh, which I think is appropriate given the stage of my career that I'm at, some people say, hang on to the end, to the bitter end. I'm, I don't intend to do that. And I'm stepping aside in part to make way for uh, younger people. And when I say younger, I mean in their 40s. <laughs> you know, who want who want that corner office and and you know want access to the graduate students and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but have I will I have surrendered something important about my brand? And I think personally for me, I don't worry about that because I've got this long track record. Yeah. And you know, except for people who are coming along brand new and meet Glenn Lowry for the first time today. Uh, everybody's going to know that uh, Glenn Lowry is a serious player. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society. He's a distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association. He's a member of the American Philosophical Society. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. Uh, and uh, he's a winner of the Bradley Prize. I, you know, I, I mean, I, all that is just like, how are they going to take that away from me? They're not going to take that. No matter where I am, I'm still Glenn fucking Lowry, you know, <laughs> like that. But but the hard part of your question and the painful part of your question is, you know, who's a young Glenn Lowry who's going to come along at Cornell or at Columbia uh, or somewhere and do a similar, you know, John shouldn't be left out. John McWhorter, my conversation partner, is younger. Uh, he's not stepping down anytime soon. He'll be quick to tell you that he is not in his 70s. He's in his 50s. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, one could point him out and, you know, there, there are a few others, but uh, no one as prominent as John and perhaps no one is quite as prominent and distinguished within their particular field as your humble servant here. 
So I don't know. I mean, this is not exactly right, but the next Glenn Lowry was supposed to be Roland Fryer, right? And it's like, what happened to him? It's like, that's not exactly encouraging. And he was, he's not exactly like you. He's not kind of, you know, doctrinaire conservative, but in terms of I've got intellectual chops, I could run at the highest possible level. I've, I'm at the most prestigious institutions and I'm willing to while out and just critique this stuff because I think it, it's, it's false. And it's like he got industrial strength canceled. So it's like that's not encouraging in terms of the new crop. I want to push back. I'm not giving up on my man Roland as a force to be reckoned with. I grant you he was set back. I grant you that his reputation was significantly damaged. I mean, there are people out there you say Roland Fryer and they basically think, oh, he's a pervert. I mean, that's horrible. That's horrible because it's false. And he didn't touch anybody. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't do anything in terms of proposition, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. so, so that's, that's horrible. But Roland is a formidable human being, not just a great economist, the winner of the Clark Medal and so forth and so on. You can't take that away from him. Um, he's a force of nature. I, I don't know if you guys uh, talk much about this, but uh, he started two companies, uh, Reconstruction, which is about tutoring online uh you know marketing to uh black families but not exclusively so recruiting an army of uh trained tutors who will uh reinforce uh the secondary education curriculum for these kids and math and science and history and literature and so forth and uh and uh he's he with the former commission uh uh, superintendent of uh, schools of Washington, D.C., Kaya Henderson, has started a company, recruited hundreds of tutors, trained them, developed their product and marketing and so forth, raised, I don't know how many millions of capital. Uh, I'm one of his investors and uh, have, have launched this enterprise. He's also launched a new company in the diversity, equity, and inclusion business, yeah. marketing their services to private uh, uh corporations, human resource departments, saying to them, one way of responding to concerns about diversity is to have these uh, Ibram X. Kendi uh, uh, type uh, seminars where someone comes through and talks about, you know, you're inner racist and, you know, combating white privilege and all that kind of, and, and they have these seances where everybody, you know, affirms that, uh, you know, yes, we're going to be more inclusive. He says, another way of doing it is to look at the data. Uh, analyze your internal uh, wage and uh, employment structures. Uh, find out whether or not there are disparities that are not accounted for by the productivity as measured by available data. And then look at your personal decision-making processes to try to identify where a problem might lie and correct it before somebody uh, brings a lawsuit or, or uh, embarrasses you with a protest or something like that. Get ahead of the curve on your diversity issues, identify the problems, using data and uh, analytical techniques. Um, and I think it's a brilliant idea, frankly. And he's cultivating clients on this second front as well. And this is his, this is his hobby. This is, you know, this, this, he's still writing academic papers. He's still a professor at Harvard. So uh, God's not finished with him yet. Yeah. And I, this is kind of sparked. I'm also, I am, I'm, I'm ruining the day that you're fully retired from Brown. And I'm I, I'm not saying this is in the realm of the possible, but I want you just I want you just dream with me. Okay, so Brown very famously has this open curriculum, right? 
there's yeah again I, people are shocked when i tell them what it is there's as an undergraduate at least there's no requirements that you take anything you could take everything pass fail if you fail a class it disappears from your transcript and technically you're allowed to fail up to two classes over the course of four years and still graduate on time there's no pluses and minuses it's just abc no credit right it's about open intellectual exploration self-directed intellectual exploration i'm not saying that all of the nation's corrosive political dysfunction particularly in the elite class would be solved by this but how much would be solved if just over the next 10 years as part of your retirement they kept the new curriculum but every single undergrad at brown has to take your race and policing class like how much would that change things you know i, I don't want to overstate <laughs> but if you made all the new like woke elites have to at least confront glenn lowry head on you don't get you have to take it at some point before you leave and even if you don't leave with the subscription to the wall street journal you at least have to face glenn lowry demonstrating the full depth and breadth of your own ignorance about these things you know what i mean i mean that this is not i'm not talking in the realm of the practical but it's just like, how much would that, that I, I, I feel as if that could just instilling that intellectual humility that's in such short supply, right? Among the woke elite. Not for me to say that, Rob, <laughs> although I don't mind hearing it. I mean, from <laughs> your lips to God's ears is almost yeah. what I want to say. Uh, of course, you can't do it at Brown, given the open curriculum, and you couldn't do it anywhere, even if there weren't an open, open curriculum, because what uh, requiring them to take Trisha Rose is one thing. Requiring him to take Glenn Lowry, that's indoctrination. That, that, oh, you know. <laughs> I see. I see. But, I see. but I'll, I'll say this. Uh, the last time I taught the race uh, crime and punishment course, I had over 100 students uh, yeah. subscribe. Me and two TAs struggled mightily to handle all the papers that were being written and so on. Among which were some surprisingly heterodox takes on you know the issue of the day crime punishment and policing you know like is defunding the police really a good idea if we're interested in the well-being of the people who live in high crime districts in the city and things of this kind um and i, I actually sent around a note to some of my um to my friends where i i just took a list of 10 or 12 of the paper topics for the final paper for the course uh, all of which had this heterodox internally critical you know i'm a progressive but i'm not sure kind of quality to them wow and i thought my god i'm 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 making some uh, headway here i get a lot of pushback in class from kids uh they say oh no no professor lowry i mean you know and, and they have values that they think are different from my own but uh the process of having to you know grapple with the arguments that i'm making in class for these kids i think is extremely instructive so right. much so that one of my hecklers, this this young woman was sitting in the back, and uh, I said uh, something like, uh, not all Black people think the same way. And then I went on to say something like, I was not offended by something that someone else took to be a microaggression. And she said, you should have been. And I said, who are you to tell me what I should have been? offended by. I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, how patronizing is that? I'm standing right here in front of you and you're, you're denying the 
evidence of your own lying eyes. There's a black man who thinks a certain way by telling me what black people should think of it. Let's let's interrogate that. And we went back and forth with that for maybe 10 minutes. You know, it yeah. was it was respectful, but it wasn't a friendly exchange. Anyway, anyway, months I'm later. Well, go, 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 to finish. No, I just finished the story. Months yeah. later, I'm on on the airplane sitting in the first class section. I have to tell you with my wife. And we're on our way out to the West Coast. And down the aisle comes this very same young woman whom I don't recognize. Mm. And she says, Professor Lowry. And I say, yes. And she introduces herself and reminds me of who she is. And my eyebrow raises a little bit. She says, that intervention changed my life. It gave me an awful lot to think about. I never said anything to you now, but thank you. Amazing. So. Glenn, I mean, I think the thing that your story is so powerful, though, is not about in, it's not about counter indoctrination, right? It's not about you saying you need to subscribe to the, 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 the cosmology of Thomas Sowell or whatever. Right. It's an injection of intellectual humility and how important that is about injecting intellectual humility into the next crop of the cognitive elite because they run the country. And the thing for me has always been, if you don't get it done in those four years, again, being intellectually humiliated by a mind that's much greater than yours is not pleasant. And you will not do it unless someone makes you do it. That's why there needs to be a structured intellectual market in which you are forced to do this. If you don't do it in those four years, I prefer, like you're gonna do I it. prefer challenged to humiliated. I don't, I don't want to humiliate anybody. I got but... humiliated as an undergrad. I'll just say I did, right? If you don't do it, then you just fall into your carefully curated ideological echo chambers. You move to Park Slope, you stay on Twitter, you just read the New York Times. Maybe you'll dabble in a Rachel Maddow monologue or two. All your friends are ideologically homogenous. And I'm not saying you're going to spend the rest of your life in an echo chamber, but that that doesn't quite, that, that almost it does accurately capture what life is like after that. And if you can get that injection of humility, I mean, for me, it was, yeah, you being forced to confront a mind that is inarguably much greater than yours, that is diametrically opposed to you on an issue of moral importance, is like the should be the core goal of an undergraduate education. And I got it because I, I was like a weird libertarian minority. But I, I do worry about it, and I think my worries have been vindicated given what happened in the summer of 2020, that there's shockingly little of that happening at the elite levels of education. And then at the non-elite levels, there's all sorts of other dysfunctions that have nothing to do with intellectual training. So like, that's amazing. That's amazing, Glenn. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this one, Rob. Donald J. Trump. Oof. Where are good kids productions in the culture Ooh. war battle that is only going to get hotter uh, over the issue of uh, the standing, the the place within the American framework, because a lot of stuff that you've been saying just now, just over the course of this last forty five minutes to an hour, uh, sounds like sounds pretty Trumpian. Is this a projection, Glenn? Is this because people <coughs> say this to you? <laughs> so, Glenn, this is a personal question because there is not an agreed upon orthodox opinion between me and my business partner of terms uh, of what we think about Donald Trump. Here's the okay. honest answer. My business partner, who comes from a much more working class, disadvantaged background than I do, who, who's a college dropout, who really had to work his way through crappy working class jobs to get to the point that he trained up to have enough technical skills 
to be a video producer, whereas I went to some fancy private schools, right? Um, I think his biography makes him much more naturally enthusiastic about Trump and more importantly, forgiving of his excesses, right? Forgiving of his excesses. And for me, I can't forgive the excesses. I can't. And I can't. And the thing that I make him confront, the thing that I make him confront is how on his own standards, Trump failed COVID. He failed the pandemic. I've read the insider accounts. We have an interview with Scott Atlas that's about to be on the channel, who's like the main COVID yeah. contrarian, right? Yeah. Read his memoir, okay? Read his memoir. Trump was Trump within six weeks had good guerrilla instincts that the lockdowns, as architected by Burks and Fauci and the CDC director, were excessive in doing insane economic damage to the country. He's always been very good at like his primal political id is in the right direction. And that was accompanied by absolutely zero follow through. Nothing, nothing. According to Atlas himself, Donald Trump at the height of the pandemic, he outsources the entire COVID portfolio to Mike Pence. And Mike Pence, either because he's a true believer or maybe because of some like canny political strategy, he just defers entirely to <laughs> you know, basically the Ivy League <laughs> technocratic woke class, right? And and that's why the lockdown policies stay for a long time. And there's uh, like a, on his own merits, Trump failed his own working class constituency, right? And because of the cult of personality and because of celebrity worship, a lot of people are blinded to this, but they don't notice that he failed them and that his signature achievement is Operation Warp Speed, which produced a vaccine that they're being told by their media sources is a Bill Gates mind control conspiracy, right? So it's like, what is going on here? And again, I'm not gonna monologue, but to have that be the case, Trump has good guerrilla instincts. I think that it was, I liked the direction he moved the party. He moved it in a more Raihan Salam type, working class, economically populist direction. But he has, since the days he ran Trump hotels, He's completely catastrophically incompetent when it comes to logistical follow through. He is. And it does matter if your president doesn't know how to like literally can't read things that are in less than 32 point font. Like it does matter. And at the same time, at the same time in this country, there being someone who has good guerrilla instincts, but also has logistical follow through and can read something that's longer than three sentences, i.e. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I was thinking and have, too. De and have DeSantis be running probably for president. The idea that you would consider the logistically incompetent gorilla over the guy who actually executed and has the receipts on it is insane to me. So that's my position. Yeah. Well, well stated. You know? uh, I think I what can do you, what, much... what do you what? What? No, yeah. I mean, what I said when John McWhorter confronted me during our Q&A, <laughs> we do a monthly Q&A and John, uh, someone had sent in a question about the uh, about Sam Harris's uh, uh, alleged statement that it's okay to suppress the laptop story if that's what it takes to keep a guy like Trump from getting elected. Yeah. And I had gone on at some length about how I thought that that was wrong. Although Sam has since clarified his position and I might not have completely accurately described it at the time. I, I still think at the end of the day, Sam and I probably disagree about, uh, you know, uh, whether Trump constitutes an existential threat to the republic of uh, such a magnitude that uh, 
You know, otherwise sensible and morally compelling rules uh, should be violated to prevent his assassination. Mean, my, my position was you have to persuade the voters that he's a bad idea as president of the United States. You don't preempt his uh, political aspiration by, you know, phony manipulation of the information flow and whatnot. So there's that. But John pressed me. He said, but you're not appalled by Trump. I'm appalled. I'm appalled. He's an idiot. Yeah. He's an asshole. He's a moron. He's, he's venal. And you seeing Glenn to always be, you know, you know, kind of halfway apologizing for him, to which I responded, no, Trump did many appalling things. And I, like others, was appalled by the appalling things he did. Uh, on the other hand, I know that there's scores of millions of people who support him. And I know that he speaks for them when he talks about the border or when he talks about China or, or whatever. And uh, in the culture war of which Trump is one uh, participant, um, you know, I'm not with those uh, coastal elites. I'm 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 with the the blue collar uh, Catholic uh, cultural conservative auto worker in Youngstown, Ohio, or something like that, who is not so sure that the trans uh, you know fad is the thing of the future. Who thinks Colin Kaepernick ought to get the fuck up off of his knees and be grateful that he's got a ten million dollar contract kind of guy? I mean that that guy. And me have very the guy that the uh, hypothetical Youngstown blue collar yeah, Catholic yeah. and me have a lot in common. And when Trump speaks and those people cheer, I, I feel heartened that there is at least some resistance to uh, the otherwise kind of self-righteous, you know, self-important, uh, you know, these elites are not that clever. They're, they're not that clever, I, I say. So I have I know, some but you're sympathy. Done, I, but that's not what I asked you, though. I said no. DeSantis versus Trump. What could possibly be the plausible argument of favoring Trump over DeSantis? In no, I agree with you. I, I, there isn't okay. any. I just read DeSantis' uh, uh, speech to the National Conservatism Conference where he yeah. explained about COVID and stuff like that. And uh, Brother DeSantis made a lot of sense to me. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously he's catching flack now for sending those Venezuelans up to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, which was a stunt, but I mean, you know, not every stunt, I mean, is... You know, sometimes you no. need to stunt in order to shake up the debate. You need uh, to internalize the cost of luxury beliefs, right? Like, I'm sure that Skip yeah. Gates and Martha's Vineyard can wax poetic about the need to embrace the fellow humans that are coming from Venezuela. And I like that DeSantis, like, calls him on his bluff. He's like, okay, bro, then you clothe and house and feed them. Come on. You don't just get to wax poetic about it anymore on PBS. He's like, engaged in human. He's engaged in human trafficking, according to some of the zanier uh, left-wing critiques of DeSantis. Because they have nothing to say. That's because they have nothing to say. They have nothing. They have nothing to say. You know. Yeah. And I'm, this DeSantis thing is happening. Like the New Yorker profile of him, Dexter Filkins, like it was not exactly a flattering piece, and it comes with all the woke Ivy League, you know, whatever ruling class baggage. Even within that, it made it through copy editing a paragraph in which he essentially admits that the Florida model was superior to the California model. And at the point like the New Yorker is admitting this is like, okay, this is, this is, this is penetrating into the discourse. Like there's, people are beginning to realize the mistakes that were made. What do you so, think the chances that uh, Trump in his wisdom and magnanimity might ascend to the position of kind of honorary chairman of the movement and, and let an operational officer and CEO type uh, actually run for the run for the presidency. See, now I'm just going to do what McWhorter does, but he's he's much he's much smarter and more eloquent than I am, where I think when you say things like that, I don't know if you're totally being serious. I do think you. 
may not ignore or maybe don't fully appreciate the extent of like the psychopathic features of Trump's personality. And I really mean that, like having read many, many insider accounts of Trump as a homo sapien, a breathing, living human being who like coughs and needs to take naps occasionally. What is his actual personality? That he's got some very good characteristics, but he is psychopathic. Like he's a narcissistic psychopath. I know I sound like Andrew Sullivan right now, but like you don't need to read, like go read the insider accounts of there. There's plenty of them, people that are politically sympathetic to Trump that think he's insane, that they think because he is insane, he's insane. And you just, anytime he's given power, you are playing with fire. You are, you are. And like, that has to be accounted for. And I, I do think as someone who's imbibed a lot of your commentary about him, I think that your critics are right that sometimes you don't properly appreciate that fact. You know, I don't want to get oh. into debate with Glenn Lowry. Uh, no, you know, no, no, no. You know I mean, what I mean? You probably win this one, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I have to make a confession here, and, and I appreciate your candor, Rob. I, I appreciate you not, uh, you know, uh, going easy on me. The thing <laughs> is, I realize this thing about myself. Sometimes I'm so pissed off at the other side yeah. and their tactics and their whatever that I, I kind of become blinded to, the, to some stuff. And the, the, the idea... Trump is an existential threat to an American democracy. He must be stopped at all costs. He's a Putin puppet. He's a traitor. Yeah. He's a he's a, a racist. He's a he's a uh, you know etc. This kind of he's personification of evil uh, uh, posture uh, disgusted me I, and 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 you know repelled uh, me. Uh, and in consequence, I perhaps have not given enough credence to what it is that you've just said, yeah. which is the man's insane. Uh, he he doesn't see the wisdom in what you, Glenn Lowry, are prescribing, which is he's already had a tremendous impact on American politics. If he were to go into the history books as a guy who served one term as president, but who nevertheless fathered a movement that changed the course of American history, it wouldn't matter if it was Ron DeSantis or uh, Donald J. Trump sitting in the Oval Office. He can't see that. It's all about the visceral. It's all about a satisfaction of the immediate ego, uh, maniacal, et cetera. And I perhaps have not given that sufficient space in my own thinking. And, and as a result, while I don't come out voting for Trump, whenever you know, I had this pat answer, who are you going to vote for? I'm going to vote for uh, Joe Biden, of course. But you shouldn't believe me, because even if I were going to vote for the other guy, I wouldn't tell you. Uh, so your question, your question is completely without content. It only has one acceptable answer. The answer is uninformative about my actual. That was my little device to kind of dodge yeah. uh, the, the Trump problem. And I don't think this is the reason they're doing it. But the new bumper crop of like Trumpist, Trump populist Senate candidates like J.D. Vance and Blake Masters. Yeah. They obviously have been very strategic about cultivating the Trump MAGA base, and they know that they that that endorsement was part of the reason that they succeeded in the primaries. Yeah. But particularly a guy like Masters has explicitly said, trying to pioneer Trumpist policies after Trump. He doesn't say without Trump, like he doesn't insult the man because he doesn't want like the holy terror to rain down on him. But some yeah. of these guys are also, and DeSantis also is trying to navigate this, where you you pay due deference to policy evolutions that he made the Republican Party go through, but like try to say like, we need to be able to survive beyond this. And that's I guess that's basically where I'm at, too.
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've done Trump. thanks for an hour of your time rob i really appreciate it uh and the new projects sound very exciting and uh, i'm i'm still available you can you can recruit me as uh, (laughs) a participant when the next thing comes down the line well um it's funny you say that you're gonna get an email to me this week about something new to exactly that effect but i don't i don't want to spoil it for the for the general public but there's um that you you will be getting an invite. I mean, I wanna I wanna squeeze you for all the the brilliance I can. You know, I wanna get all of it. So I, I definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Have you heard from Kanye? <laughs> People need no. to know that Rob Montz in his youth was a and perhaps still is a rabid hip hop fan, uh, and that he's a great admirer of the genius. Yeah. Uh, My youth. <laughs> Why do you feel like you have to say that? As if people when they see me. They don't see gritty urban authenticity. I don't understand why you're making that assumption, Glenn. All they see right here is someone who's earned his reps in the school of hard knocks. Under no circumstances has it changed. The Alexa in my house with me and my three kids and my wife, all it plays is the Encanto soundtrack, the Mary Poppins soundtrack, and the collected works of Biggie Smalls. That's all we bump in my house. That's for real, for real. No, and I don't know. I actually lean into it even more now. I mean, it's I mean, we don't need to get into this like. But Glenn, like rap music, 90s rap music is one of my like three favorite things about human existence. I'm not even joking. Like I'm approaching 40. I'm trying to be honest with myself. That's just for real. It's in my top three thing. I have three children. Okay, there's a chance rap music has bumped one of the like I it's there's. And I'm very specific about the the era that I grew, the era that I was raised on. It's very different in terms of the the philosophy and the. It's not. There's a nihilism, in the the newest iteration of rap. But the stuff that I grew up on, like '89, like '97, is is that's that's gospel for me. It is. You say, really Biggie. Is. What about Tupac? What about Dre? Uh, I feel like there's very few things in the world that I could claim to have authentic, genuine world-class expertise in. But what you're trying to step into right now is that's what it is. Like, this is something I know a lot about. Okay, this is what you do. Uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not claiming any knowledge. I'm just asking a question. In terms of technical ability as a lyricist, like Biggie is light years beyond Tupac. And I mean, I don't like, there's a fake ass artifice to Tupac as well. I know a lot about that man. And the thug, this is sound ridiculous. The thug posture yeah. was a choice. And yeah. it was a marketing choice. It was a commercial branding choice. For Biggie, it was not. He was actually selling crack cocaine when he was 17. Tupac Shakur was a soft-spoken art student, all right? And there was in in his early 20s, either through conscious, cynical branding positioning, or maybe because like just organically following what was profitable or popular, he adopts this persona. And for me, once you know the reality of his biography, it breaks a little bit of the spell. He's still amazing. He's still amazing. But well, Suge Knight is a thug, right? I mean, Death Row, Death Row was was not just an artifice. and, and you know, I mean, there were some well, hard guys in there, no? 
<laughs> yeah. I'm asking you. You know, this is your yeah. But Suge Knight's a genuine. It was like a genuine brutal gangster, right? Yeah. And Tupac also left Death Row. There's a reason why. I mean, there's a, there's only so much violent dysfunction. Like even he could take. Dre left Death Row. I mean, I think Snoop Dogg left Death Row. There's a uh, there's a fakeness to it. Um, there's artifice to it. And also just, I mean, it really is just like, this is so dorky, but like technical, verbal virtuosity. This is real. I'm telling you, this is real, Glenn. This is, this is cringy and ridiculous, but I love what I do in part because of the writing that we get to do, the voiceovers, the script work. Yeah. I love working with you because like you have incredible weight with language. And as I deepen and try to cultivate that in myself, like part, part of that's like reading the collected essays of Joan Didion, but part of it's also revisiting like Biggie albums. Because in terms of like verbal playfulness and innovation, he's just like otherworldly, otherworldly genius. He really is. And there's guys I like get close to him. Like I, the only modern rapper I like is Kendrick Lamar. I'd imagine you know who he is. But he, of in course. terms of like <laughs> poetry, yeah, poetry and playfulness, and like, uh, like moral sophistication. He's he's close, but it's just like he's Biggie's just like another level. He really is just another level. And it's just like the stuff you read, the stuff you listen to on repeat between the age of eleven and sixteen, just seeps into your bone marrow in a way yeah. that nothing else will. Right? I'm, I know you have. I know you have similar. Well, similar Motown, stuff. man. Every anytime I hear Smokey Robinson interviewed, I'm right there. I'm right there because that was it. That was it for me, man. Right, because you're, but like you're, 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 you're outside, like hardens, you know, once you're 18, 19, 20, in a way that that music, you could just live in it when you're that young. And I'm not saying I'm trying to feed it to my children, but you know, we'll just sprinkle a little bit gangstar amidst the (laughs) soundtrack and just see what takes root. I'm just trying my best. (laughs) You can tell Alexa to play. God damn it. I love that shit so much. I really, it's like, it really is. Yeah, I love it. And also, if we're if if what we're trying to create with our videos is an authentic, authentic expression of what I think is like the dopeness, it's going to involve those kind of beats. It just is. It's ludicrous that I'm the like you know some you know dork who's doing it, but I don't care. I don't know, man. It's working well so far. <laughs> we'll see. <I> don't know. <laughs> yeah. So well, I don't know. People who have not seen some of Rob's videos should know that he often appears in his videos. Yes, uh, and personifies this kind of hipness and this kind of uh, <laughs> raw, don't put it like that. Uh, yes, that is. You know, etc. Well, well, I think I'm sure you will, but I think if people have not seen our stuff, they should uh, hopefully at least start with maybe "Silence You" Part One. That's the first thing we ever worked on, and that includes the only time I, the first time I had ever just had 45 minutes of uncut monologuing from anyone. It was in that doc with you. And the second time I ever did it was with the Roland Fire doc. And it's just, you know, 30, 45 seconds, no visuals of just like Glenn Lowry doing his Glenn Lowry thing. People can get this at your website. They will like Silent You Part One. They they will like that. (laughs) They can get this at your website. We're going to tell them where to go. Yeah. Uh, And so on. Okay, Rob, I need to sign off. Uh, Thanks for your time. Great to talk to you. Look forward to working with you going forward. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for having me. You're welcome.